Hello, welcome to a new episode of Overmorrow's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Today's episode is dedicated to two new books, which we will insert on the shelves of our library for the day after tomorrow. The two books are Heavenly Palaces in Judaism, a Historical Travel Guide by Giulio Buzzi, published in 2020, and The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Eschel, published in 1951. These two books talk about elements of the Jewish faith. But the reason why they're put in this episode together is more specific. We will include them, in fact, in our library, not on the shelf of religion, but in the imaginary shelf dedicated to architecture. Let's see why that's the case. And we'll begin with Giulio Buzzi's book, Heavenly Palaces in Judaism. Giulio Buzzi is a scholar and his work has investigated many aspects of Jewish mysticism, from the Kabbalah to the way in which Jewish mysticism influenced the Italian Renaissance, especially Giovanni Pico della Miranda. This particular book is dedicated to a very fascinating tradition within Jewish mysticism, the so-called Echalot literature. That is the literature that is dedicated to the palaces, Echalot. These are not the palaces that we find here on earth but the palaces that we find in heaven. This trend of literature dates back to the early centuries of the vulgar era, so to say, so just after the birth of Christ. And it developed especially in the Mesopotamian region. It's a very difficult literature to read directly because it was written for initiates and it was meant to retain a very big element of mystery. Also, as a general rule, when you encounter mystical literature, meaning is never what it seems. Mysticism often tries to break the semantic aspect of language, and so you can never trust the surface of the letter. And this is precisely why Giulio Buzzi's travel guide to the heavenly palace is very precious to navigate these difficult waters. Not only that, but Giulio Buzzi writes exceptionally well, exceptionally especially for a scholar, but with a true lyrical gift. But let's remain on the Echolot literature. We will use Buzi's book as a guide. This literature has to do with the spiritual journey that was undertaken by mystics who sought to regain the vision of the divine chariot, which was described by the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel talks about the moment when the heavens split open, the sky open, we'll see in what sense, and he was given a vision of the divine chariot is incredible artifact of heaven. But we're not there yet. We begin with the journey. And this journey is an ascent. So it's a travel up to heaven that the mystic has to undertake. But it is performed by moving downwards. Okay, this is the first remarkable aspect of this literature. They propose an ascent downwards or a way to sink upwards. This has to do in part with the technique of meditation and of um, prayer that is involved by the practices described by this literature. The mystic is expected to sit in a particular posture with their head between their knees, looking down. And so when they ascend, they ascend backwards and upwards as if they were walking up a ladder looking down. But we also find this strange movement sinking up within 
uh, also in the tradition, the mystical tradition of the Mesopotamian region, and in particular of a nearby region where the school of Hermeticism was developed around the same time. The idea is that the microcosm within the soul, so to say, of a creature, and the macrocosm that includes the entirety of the universe are mirrors of each other. So sinking inwards allows you to sink, also ascend upwards in the sky and in heaven. But also this paradoxical movement has to do with the challenge that is posed by the mystics onto the laws of space and movement. Breaking free from the regime of space, we will see later with Eschel, is an important aspect of Judaism. And we will find it here also in the architecture of the heavenly palaces. If we follow this impossible movement through the literature of the Echalot, we find that it is punctuated by a series of challenges that the mystic has to undertake and overcome. They are difficult challenges. The first one is almost impossible. The first challenge is to pass the vault that closes the sky. Because in many ancient cultures, the sky is seen as a solid barrier, a barrier that divides the waters above from the waters below the firmament. In the book of Job, for example, the sky is described as firm as a mirror of cast metal. Echolot mystics have to pass through this metal barrier, which it opens by itself when God wants to reveal himself to the humans, or it opens by itself for great prophets like Ezekiel, but it doesn't open for the normal everyday mystic. And so to perform this feat, the mystics have to prepare themselves. They need to prepare themselves for days before their journey. To be able to pass the vault of the sky, they need to fast for days, to abstain from sex, but especially to withdraw from social life. They need to de-socialize themselves until their awareness becomes so subtle as to be able to pass through the metal barrier of the sky. But preparation is not limited to purifying oneself and de-socializing. First and foremost, preparation requires learning a huge amount of words, some of which are entirely delinked from any meaning. These words are the seals, literally the seal, like the seals you would have on a ring. At that time, in antiquity, seals played a function, an important function in daily life. They were like a person's signature, or better, their password. Seals are used in the course of this journey to heaven precisely as passwords. The heavenly traveler has to hand over, to consign, to recite the right seal to the angels that are guarding the seven palaces of heaven. And the seal is made of words. It's made of better letters, combinations of letters. So you have to give this seal to the angel. And we might assume that the angel is a benevolent figure but on the contrary, the angels are the guardians. And in Echalot literature, but also in, more in general in Judaism, angels are fairly hostile figures to the humans. They are holy indeed, but they don't love the humans. On the contrary, they opposed since the beginning, the very creation of the human being. We find a similar theme also in Muslim mysticism. In many mystical poems in Islam, and in Sufism in particular, they talk about Iblis, Satan. Iblis was an angel who rebelled against God, not because he wanted to take over the world, but because God decided to create Adam, to create the human, 
and asked the angels to prostrate themselves in front of him. The angels begrudgingly accepted to do that only because God ordered it. But Iblis refused, saying that he was a true monotheist and he would only bow in front of God so that the Muslim mystic would say that Iblis is a true believer. Only two, there were two true believers so far, they say. One is Muhammad, the other is Iblis. But Iblis is an, is an enemy to humans. And in fact, in this case, if the mystic gives the wrong seal, recites the wrong seal to the angel, the mystic is killed immediately. But if they give the right seal, pronounced in the correct order of letters, then they might be granted access to the palaces of heaven. So one after the other, the mystic sinks upwards through heaven and through the palaces. One, two, three, four, five palaces, each replenished with fire and chariots and incredible feats and features, until they reach the sixth palace, the one before the seventh, the palace of God. There, in the sixth palace, they are invested by a special heavenly water. We read in the small book of palaces, and I quote, Though the guardians of the sixth palace throw a thousand and one thousand waves of water on him, on the mystic, there is not a drop. Why? If he asks, what is this water? They are immediately chasing to stone him. Once the mystic Ben Azai, having reached the sixth palace, opened his mouth and asked, what is the nature of this water? And he died. So at the sixth palace, as a sixth heavenly palace, the mystic encounters this ineffable substance, so ineffable that even the attempt to ask what it is is punished with death. We are now entering properly in the realm of mystery, the realm of silence. And these waters symbolize this silence, this ineffability. And if we follow them, we find them flowing and springing abundantly from the seventh palace, the final palace where God's throne can be found. But entering the seventh palace, once again, is not easy. Right in front of the gates, we encounter the palace's guardian, Metatron, the prince of the face, who's sitting on a throne of his own. Metatron is the most important archangel of all. All the other angels are jealous of him, and they are jealous of him because he is an immigrant. Metatron wasn't born an angel. He was born a human. He was Enoch, who was taken up by God after a long and rightful life, and he was promoted through the ranks of the angels to become God's right hand. Metatron is God's face. It's God's voice, performs a series of actions on behalf of God. And the angels resent this very much. It is unacceptable to them that an immigrant human is accepted in the heavenly sphere and in the heavenly kingdom. Metatron then is reminded often by the angels of his position, of his illegitimacy there, and he is also punished. The angels rejoice when Metatron is punished by God with 60 lashes done with an iron bar, when Metatron forgets to stand up the moment God enters into the palace. Metatron is the only angel who helps the humans. And Metatron is routinely addressed in the Echolot literature as simply the boy. Imagine the greatest archangel called the boy. The boy Metatron is a special angel also because he's in charge of the warehouses of heaven. 
And here really we find an architectural element in the Echalot literature. In heaven, all the objects and the events that ever happened and never existed throughout history are stored in huge warehouses. So all the rain, the hail, the wind, the ever blew and will ever blow in the world is stored there. But all the events, all the people, the sadness and the joy, the birth and the deaths, the battles and the victories and the defeats, they're all always already stored physically there. In heaven, time becomes space, or better said, maybe, space is revealed as an arrangement of time. So Metatron is in charge of these incredible warehouses. And when the mystic arrives to meet him, Metatron can show the mystic all the past, the present and the future stored together in this enormous heavenly warehouse. But Metatron is just in front of the gates to the seventh palace. And the gate itself is important here. The gates to the seventh palaces are the gates of the Shekinah, which means divine presence. The divine presence, the Shekinah, is totally ineffable and yet is pervasive. God is a very real presence, but it is the invisible origin of all that is visible, and it is the silence out of which all sounds emanated. Passing through the gates of Shekinah, the mystic can finally enter the palace, where there is God's throne. And a wall of burning angels surrounds God's throne. And all the angels sing, but they only sing for one day, because the angels can only sustain for one day the vision of God. After one day of singing, they are burnt and they are substituted. And under the throne, holding it up, we find the Hayot, four incredible creatures made of heavenly water. It is worth reading the description of the Hayot, which we can find in the book of Ezekiel where it's written. They, the Ayot, had the figures of human beings. However, each had four faces and each of them had four wings. The legs of each were fused into a single rigid leg and the feet of each were like a single calf's hoof. And their sparkle was like the luster of burnished bronze. They had human hands below their wings. The four of them had their faces and their wings on their four sides. They did not turn when they moved. Each could move in the direction of any of its faces. Each of them had a human face to the front. Each the four had the face of a lion on the right. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left. And each of the four had the face of an eagle at the back. They went wherever the spirit impelled them to go, without turning when they moved. Julia Buzzi, interestingly, acutely points out that this figure of this ayot, or this divine creature, unspecified in its nature, resembles that of the angel of history, painted by Clay and commented by Walter Benjamin. Reaching the throne in the seventh palace is the pinnacle of the heavenly journey, and it means reaching the center of the cosmic labyrinth. It means regaining once again the center of the Garden of Eden, being reinstated to the original condition of humanity. It means merging once again within God's presence, the Shekinah. But do we need to go up to the seventh palace in heaven, or down, if you wish, to find this presence? No, says another author, the author of the second book, which are inserting in today's library. Abraham Joshua Eschel's book, 
The Sabbath, published in 1951. Who was Escher? He was a Polish rabbi who in 1939 migrated to the US and specifically to New York. In New York, he worked as a professor of Jewish studies and he became one of the most important Jewish intellectuals of the 20th century. But he was also an active part of the civil rights movement to the point that Martin Luther King Jr. called him a truly great prophet of our time. So let's look at his book, The Sabbath, and let's see in what sense, first of all, has to do with finding the divine presence. And secondly, it fits on the shelf dedicated to architecture. The book, The Sabbath, is dedicated to the day of rest, a real institution in Judaism. As you know, the Jewish faithful works for six days and on the seventh day they rest. Because in six days, as it is recounted in Genesis, God created the world and he saw that the world was good. But on the seventh day, he rested, instituting the Sabbath. And he said that it was holy. The first time the word holy is mentioned in the, in the Bible in Genesis, it's not referred to any of the elements of the world. It's referred to the Sabbath. The day of rest is a day of holiness. It's a day in which the human is given to experience well, the descent of the divine presence upon the world. The Sabbath, the day of the Sabbath, which returns every week, is a palace in time, says Eschel. The Sabbaths are the great cathedrals in time of the Jews. The Jews don't have great buildings in space, in part for historical reasons, having been in exile for a very long time and the Temple of Jerusalem being destroyed twice. But this is not the only reason why they don't have great cathedrals in space. Heschel says that Jewish rituals are in themselves forms of architecture of time, that Judaism is a religion of time, not of space. So the Sabbath. The Sabbath doesn't begin on the Sabbath, so on the Saturday, but it begins on the Friday. All activities are interrupted in an observant Jewish family on Friday evening, just as the sun sets. And they are interrupted until the sunset on the following day, on the Saturday. Until then, it is forbidden even to think about work. There is a story of a rabbi who on the Saturday was walking through his garden and he sees that a bit of the fence is broken, so he thinks, tomorrow I'll fix it, then realizes that he had been planning work during the Sabbath. And it is said, the fence was never fixed ever again. Heschel is very clear in this regard, and he says, rest on the Sabbath as if all your work were done. Another way of saying, rest even from the thought of labor. This is a prohibition, yes, but it is not a prohibition to take something away from the human. It is an opportunity. Heschel speaks often about the grandeur of the Sabbath. He uses this word often, grandeur, nobility. It is a day in which we are all freed from labor. The Sabbath is a reminder of heaven, but especially is a reminder of the innate nobility of the human being. The human being belongs to the Sabbath. It's only, let's say, accidentally part of the other days of the week. Let's read again Heschel directly, who writes beautifully, by the way. He says, the seventh day is like a palace in time with a kingdom for all. It is not a date, but an atmosphere. It is not a different state of consciousness, but a different climate. The hours of the seventh day are significant in themselves. Their significance and beauty do not depend on any work, profit or progress we may achieve. They have the beauty of grandeur. Heschel insists on this 
dimension of the Sabbath, which is somehow noble, aristocratic in the sense of nobility, and in the emancipatory potential of the Sabbath. To accept and to prepare for the Sabbath means also to exit civilization, the civilization of space, the civilization of technical achievements, the civilization of labor, of social forces, social positions. And he writes, we look to the Sabbath as our homeland, as our source and destination. It is a day in which we abandon our plebeian pursuits and reclaim our authentic state in which we may partake of a blessedness in which we are what we are, regardless of whether we are learned or not, of whether our career is a success or a failure. It is a day of independence of social conditions. But this independence and this emancipation from social conditions is not an exclusive gift given to the humans. It is extended to the whole of the planet. And Eschel continues saying, on the seventh day, man has no right to tamper with God's world, to change the state of physical things. It is a day of rest for man and animal alike. It is a day of rest for the whole of creation. So the Sabbath is the pinnacle of the week. It is the seventh palace of the days. It is the, the seventh heavenly palace already here on earth within the week, every week returning. And it is also somehow a person because the architecture described here is not an architecture simply of buildings. It's an architecture of figures, of people to a certain extent, of persons. The Sabbath is personified. It is personified in the shape of a bride, of a beautiful, noble bride. And the faithful is the groom who expects this bride and prepares themselves to uh, the arrival of this noble bride in a similar way in which, for example, the whole people of Israel are personified. And in that case, Israel, the people of Israel are the bride and God is her groom. It is important to learn how to receive the Sabbath in one's life. And social life itself has to be arranged so that there is always adequate space for the Sabbath for all. There is something silently insurrectionary and beautifully anarchistic about this. It reminds me almost of the slogans of 1977 in Autonomia. So receiving the Sabbath is itself a crucial part of Jewish religious life. But in Hebrew, to say to receive, to receive the Sabbath, but to receive in general, uses a special verb. The verb is Kabbalah, the same name of the famous mystical tradition, which means to receive. So we will continue this exploration of Jewish mysticism architecture in time and in heaven, but also Kabbalism. In the next episode with Professor Giulio Buzzi, the author of the book on heavenly palaces in Judaism and a professor of Jewish studies at the Freie Universität in Berlin. I hope you will follow me to the next episode, still here on Overmorrow's Library from the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Goodbye. <laughs>